0: Of all the categories of marginal people that emerged on the frontier, renegades, those who joined the Indians and fought against their own kind, aroused the greatest hatred and detestation. Paranoia, fear, and rumor colored contemporaneous stereotyped reactions to renegades and established them in popular imagination as degenerate turncoats who surpassed their Indian friends in cruelty and treachery no renegade, perhaps no individual in American frontier history, enjoyed such notoriety as Simon Gertie. Colin G. Calloway Simon Gertie is without a doubt one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented people in all of American history. He's also an archetypal man of the middle ground, which places him squarely in the X ring of my historical interests. Until now, I haven't engaged fully with him on Frontier Partisans. He's kind of crept stealthily into a number of posts, but he always disappears into the dark, tangled forest of the Ohio frontier history before I can really draw a beat on him. This podcast, I hope, will, will finally rectify that. Simon Gertie and his brothers, James and George, who had all been captured and adopted by Indians during the French and Indian War, Defected to the British in 1778 and would play active roles in operations against American settlements in western Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. Early triumphalist history, is, as uh, Calloway indicates, portrayed them as, as race traitors and, and fiends, demons. They were literally demonized. Probably my first exposure to the Gerties was in Zane Grey's romance *Spirit of the Border*, where Lewis Wetzel was portrayed as a frontier savior and an avenging angel, and uh, and James Gertie in particular was was almost a, a tittering psychopath. And uh, you know, given Wetzel's actual proclivities, um, Grey kind of turned history on its its head there. Um, if anyone was. Was mentally disturbed in that equation. It was probably more Wetzel than the Gerties because Wetzel was a uh, was a murderer. He he killed Indians indiscriminately, whether they were hostile, friendly, whether they were at peace or at war, and uh, and yet he was regarded for for many years, and in in some circles still to this day as a frontier hero, where, where the Gerties are, are, again, literally demonized. Now, as you all know, I delved very deeply into the history of the Ohio Valley frontier, and as I did, I came to understand that Simon Gerty was not the devil that he'd been made out to be. Alan W. Eckert portrayed him with nuance and a modicum of revisionist justice in in his uh 1968 narrative, The Frontiersman, which focused on the archetypal frontiersman of the era, Simon Kenton. Kenton and Gertie were very, very close friends, blood brothers, lifelong comrades, despite fighting on the opposite side of a really savage conflict. Gertie saved Kenton from burning at the stake, as a matter of fact, and that's a a story that we'll touch on. So, clearly, Simon Gertie wasn't the bad guy in the Frontier story. Um, I read the Frontiersman for the first time when I was 13 or 14 years old, and it was an eye-opener, a real life-shaping experience. Um, but even then, I was, I was still a ways from truly understanding that, that maybe frontier partisan history isn't really a good guys versus bad guys story at all. Having eventually arrived there, this podcast is my opportunity to square up and grapple with what I consider to be one of the most remarkable of American lives. Simon Girty was born in 1741 on the Pennsylvania frontier, the son of an Irishman, uh, by which we mean Scots-Irish, which uh, we talked about that hardy frontier people in uh, my podcast series on Kit Carson. And uh, Simon's father was also named Simon Gertie, and his mother was a young English woman named Mary Newton. His early life, Simon's early life, was just shot through with tragedy and violence. His family were squatters, meaning that his father had settled on land beyond the settlement line in west-central Pennsylvania on Indian land, and at that time, in the mid, uh, mid part of the 18th century, the colonial government of Pennsylvania was regularly running squatters off and fining them, and, and they burned their cabins because they were trying to keep settlement contained and, uh, and not uh, create conflict with the, the tribes in central and western Pennsylvania. And uh, this happened to the Gerties at least one time. So in his youth, Simon saw his house destroyed and and their livelihood imperiled. Um, When he was nine years old, his father, who was a moderately successful trader among the Indians, was killed in a brawl or perhaps it was uh, a form of informal duel with a man named Samuel Sanders. The following is from Gertie's major biographer, Philip W. Hoffman. According to an 1847 letter sent to the historian Lyman Copeland Draper by Joseph Munger, Jr., a great-grandson of Simon Gertie, Sr., quote, The traitor met his fate when Simon Sr. had a difficulty with one Samuel Sanders. Gertie challenged him. They met and both missed. Then they took their swords. Gertie made a misstep and fell. Sanders treacherously run him through with a sword, which caused his death. According to Frontier Custom, which was born of necessity, Simon's mother soon remarried to a neighbor man named John Turner. And it seems that Turner was a good fellow and a hard worker, and for a few years life was quiet and relatively prosperous for the mixed Gertie-Turner clan. And then war came. The French and Indian War turned the Pennsylvania frontier into a killing zone. The French and the British empires have been tussling each other with each other for a century, and uh, the North American frontier was, was usually a secondary theater of war in these repeated dynastic conflicts that started in Europe and then spread to the colonies. This time around, things were different. Uh, it started in in seventeen fifty four and and the war started actually in the Pennsylvania wilderness and then eventually spread to europe and the stakes were control of the fur trade and ultimately mastery of North America and the Caribbean so that the new world had become the great imperial prize after a catastrophic defeat of a British expedition to take the French Fort Duquesne at the Forks of the Ohio River, which is modern-day Pittsburgh, Uh, this was in 1755, the frontier was thrown wide open to Indian raiders who attacked the settlements, killing and looting and and taking captives. The taking of captives was a, a key feature of eastern woodland warfare. Due to disease and warfare, native peoples had been facing severe population declines for the past two centuries. So taking captives, and especially children and also teenagers and young adults, and adopting them into the tribe and the culture was a way of replacing losses and and shoring up their populations. So Braddock's defeat occurred in 1755, and over the next year, the the uh the settlers were in, in western pennsylvania and virginia were were virtually defenseless. The Gertie family was captured when a mixed force of French soldiers and Indians took Fort Granville, which was located just south of the center of the modern state of Pennsylvania. The Turner Gertie clan had forded up there with their neighbors and it was actually John Turner who was serving as a sergeant in the militia who agreed to surrender the fort and, and open the gates. Peaceful surrender did not save him from a, a gruesome fate. As an early chronicle recounts, Turner was tied to a stake and, quote, after having heated several old gun barrels red hot, they danced around him and every minute or two seared and burned his flesh. After tormenting him almost to death, they scalped him and then held up a lad who ended his sufferings by laying open his skull with a hatchet. Now, it was Delaware Indians that, that tortured John Turner to death, and it's a bit of a mystery as to, as to why they singled Turner out for torture. Modern scholars have discovered French reports that indicate that it was all just a terrible misunderstanding. Simon Cedar Sr. had been uh, a respected traitor amongst the Delaware, and uh, the Delawares may have believed that Turner was the man who killed him and then took his widow to wife, which they found deeply offensive and, disturb- and deserving of, of severe punishment. Um, of course, that wasn't the case at all, so it was really a case of, of horrible mistaken identity. This horror show had to have been traumatizing for Mary Gertie Turner and for her children, who witnessed the whole thing. And uh, after John Turner's torture and execution, Shawnee Indians took Mary and her young son, John Turner Jr., to Fort Duquesne, the French fort at uh, uh, modern-day Pittsburgh, where they were interrogated by the French and then moved on to the Shawnee villages in the Ohio interior. Fourteen-year-old Simon and his brothers James, George, and Thomas were parceled out amongst various tribes for adoption. George stayed with Delaware. James went to the Shawnee, and Simon would become a Seneca. The Seneca were, at that point, probably the most feared and militant of the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations, the people still best known as the Iroquois. And Gertie would spend the next eight years as an adopted Seneca under the tutelage of one of the great ones of that nation, a man named Gaiasuta. Gaiasuta was a pro-French militant and a leader of the Indian Rebellion that followed British victory in the French and Indian War. In fact, what we know as Pontiac's Rebellion could just as well be called Gaiasuta's Rebellion. So, Young Gertie's teenage years were spent under the wing of one of the era's most significant political, diplomatic, and military leaders, and and this would figure in Gertie's later career. In a previous episode uh, on the Scottish Highlanders, we recounted the tale of the Battle of Bushy Run, which seriously blunted the momentum of Pontiac's Rebellion, or as we'll call it uh, today, at least, Guyasuta's Rebellion. That was a battle that took place uh, outside of, of Fort Pitt, uh, where Indians ambushed an expedition to relieve the besieged fort. I guess I should back up and and note that the British renamed Fort Duquesne after they took it during the French and Indian War. They called it Fort Pitt, which became Pittsburgh. Pontiac and Gaiasuta's rebellion had laid siege to Fort Pitt, and a column was sent out to relieve it. The Indians ambushed it, and there was a very hard-fought two-day battle, uh, but the Scottish Highlanders in uh, Colonel Henry Bouquet's army ultimately prevailed and, and routed and drove the Indians from the field and so in the wake of the victory in, in that battle, the British negotiated a settlement with the tribes, and that included the repatriation of captives. So Simon Gertie and his family were headed back to British American civilization. So the wake of the war also included, the wake of the rebellion, also included land sessions in the 1760s in which the uh, certain Indian lands were open for settlement, and so the Gerties were able to secure title to farmlands in the area of Squirrel Hill in Pennsylvania, east of Fort Pitt, and that would become kind of the family homestead for uh, Brother Thomas and and half-brother John Turner, Jr., who were perfectly contented to become successful farmers. The other Gertie brothers were not cut out to settle down. Uh, James became an Indian trader amongst the Shawnee and George would retain his ties to the Delaware. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, they, they killed his stepfather and, uh, most brutally and, and surely he was traumatized by that. But George did stay with the Delaware and and remained affiliated with them through the rest of his, his life. That's not an uncommon phenomena in frontier history. And uh, it might be a form of Stockholm syndrome. It may just be that uh, the adoption process was successful. Once a person was adopted into one of these Indian nations, they truly were a part of that people. They they were not regarded as different or or held apart because of their white skin or their blue eyes or their red hair or anything like that. They were they were considered fully-fledged members of the people who adopted them. And it's not uncommon for, like Mary Jemison, who was uh, captured and adopted by the Seneca, she saw her mother killed and scalped on the trail, and yet she lived with the Seneca for the rest of her life quite happily. It's uh, one of the the strangest and most perplexing phenomena of frontier history, but it happens over and over across the continent. At any rate, um, George did stay with uh, the Delaware, um, at least retained his ties with them as he moved back and forth between white culture and Indian culture. And Simon would become an interpreter for the British Indian department. Biographer Philip Hoffman provides a portrait of Simon Gertie at this stage of his career working out of Fort Pitt. Simon's life required him to play a number of diverse roles as he danced from one involvement to another, from one culture to the other. His time with his family and neighbors on Squirrel Hill was in stark contrast to his time working for the Indian department, and the time he spent with fur traders and businessmen was markedly different from the time he spent with Indians or frontiersmen. He was energetic and perceptive and was honing his natural ability to acquire, evaluate, utilize, and debate information on a variety of subjects as sharply as he would have been had he been attending a good university. Another strange aspect of the phenomenon of Indian captivity across several centuries and across the continent is that many, many of the the people who were captured captured by various Indian peoples didn't want to return to white civilization when they had the chance to do so, and did very poorly when they did. Again, this is even people whose family members had been killed when they were captured. Something about re-entry into the culture of their birth was... Very, very difficult for these frontier people uh, in most cases. But Hoffman notes that that really wasn't the case for Simon Gertie. Although many repatriated former white captives suffered difficult social readjustments after returning from years of life among the Indians, Gertie had no such trouble. Unlike his contemporaries, who almost always favored residing either in the Indian or the white worlds, Gertie thoroughly enjoyed living in both. Sparked by diversity, he found it boring if he remained too long in a single lifestyle or routine. People knew him, who knew him at the time recalled him as an active, jocular, and outspoken man. Rough, but popular. Some called him important. And a few pointed out that although he was generally good-natured, he could quickly become antagonistic and aggressive to people he did not care for, especially if he was drinking. A few women remember him being dark, stout, and good-looking, a, quote, commanding man. Some people recall that he was an inveterate prankster. Clearly, Gertie was larger than life. Whether they were praising him or cursing him, nobody seems to have remembered him in vague or lifeless terms. Gertie had another gig that demonstrates to me that he was not only a cultural mediator with advanced diplomatic and linguistic skills, he was really an elite frontiersman. In 1768, he took a position as foreman of a commercial hunting crew organized by trader and diplomat George Morgan. Morgan's plan was to send hunters far down the Ohio River into what is now western Kentucky and Tennessee to exploit the large herds of buffalo that thrived there. There were quite a a few buffalo east of the Mississippi in the 18th century. They were to package the meat and the tallow from the buffalo for use by the British garrisons in the fort of the Illinois country, which had recently been acquired from the French. So Gertie was the leader of a party of long hunters into the way back of beyond. It was inherently dangerous work and it proved to be catastrophically so. While their boats were beached on the Cumberland River near present day Carthage, Tennessee, Gertie's party was set upon by a party either of Shawnee or Cherokee uh, Indians, depending on, on who's your source. There was no war on, but the Indians of the region were not happy with parties of long hunters poaching in their territory. And they often robbed and sometimes attacked hunting parties. So Gertie's crew scattered and made a run for it in the woods. Gertie was, was a fast runner, he's very fleet of foot and outdistanced his pursuers, but he didn't just simply run off. He'd been tutored by Seneca warriors and he understood tactics. He set up an ambush on the men tracking him and, and killed one. And then he ran on and set up another ambush point. But it he, he waited there and it became clear that the attackers had lost their taste for the chase and, and had uh, had given it up. So then he circled around back to the boats and found most of the crew were dead and mutilated. And the boats had been stove in and their casks of buffalo meat and and tallow broken open and, and tossed into the, to the river. Gertie found a second boat crew um, from the hunting outfit and warned them away and then set off overland to inform Morgan, who was at Kaskaskia um, on the Mississippi River, of what had happened. He made that 300-mile overland trek through hostile territory in seven days, Whereupon, Morgan immediately sent him out to locate a party of missing hunters. Morgan was, he had to abandon the commercial hunting enterprise. It was obviously too dangerous. And uh, Gertie headed back up the Ohio to Fort Pitt and and was hired back by Alexander McKee, uh, who was half English and half Shawnee and worked for the Indian Department. Um, he was rehired, Gertie was, as an interpreter. So this episode in the in the in what was then the Far West made Simon Gertie's reputation as a frontiersman. Only a handful of men on the Ohio, Ohio River frontier had his level of capability, the ability to escape and evade, to ambush pursuers, um, the land navigation required to get from from western Kentucky to Kaskaskia through uh, hostile territory, extreme endurance, knocking off 40 mile days in succession. In modern parlance uh, he had proved himself to be an, an operator. So as the decade turned to the 1770s Gertie was well established as a man of significant consequence on the frontier and his reputation would only grow as the region descended once again into war. In the next chapter of this series on Simon Gertie, American Renegade, Simon will find a lover, build his reputation as an interpreter and scout, and become a lifelong brother to one of the greatest frontier partisans of them all. So we'll take that story up in the in the next episode. I want to thank you all for being here at the campfire if you'd care to support the work of frontier partisans you can uh, throw down some clues at the patreon page and uh, enjoy some exclusive content as a reward that's much appreciated the link to that is in the uh, in the show notes and uh, we'll see you down the trail